Welcome to the Spirit Anointing the Word, the podcast of Highland Church, Jamaica, New York, with Pastor Subash Cherian. We're so glad to have you with us today, and we're excited about God's Word because it gives us strength and hope for each and every day. Let's listen as Pastor Subash shares this powerful message. Father, we're so grateful that we can gather here together in celebrating your greatness, your power, your love, and awesomeness. You are great, you are mighty, and you deserve all the praise, the glory, and we come to you, Lord, thanking you, adoring you, worshiping you in the mighty name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King. This day, Lord God, we come together recognizing the need, O oh God, for us to come closer, to seek you, and to receive a touch from you. And Lord, through your Holy Spirit, revive us, we pray. Cover us, cleanse us, wash us by the blood. And we pray, God, even at this moment, that the healing virtue of our Lord Jesus would flow. Touch lives today and needs be met according to your riches. And Father, we pray that you would touch emotion, relationship, and particularly, Lord, our relationship with you and with one another. We just pray for peace within the hearts of people and peace, O oh God, within your body and across the world, the Prince of Peace who alone can give. To your name we give glory and honor, Abba Father. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen and Amen. Give the Lord a clap offering. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Once again, what a joy it is to be here this morning. And we want to continue on with where we had left behind, talking about trees. And I want to just say right off the bat that the trees in the Bible, there's uh, more about trees in the Bible than, uh, than any other subject except man. And we need to understand the trees have a metaphor. Among many things, the most important thing, primarily it's about the Lord Jesus Christ, points to, and second, uh, secondly, it's a metaphor not only of the Lord, but also the redeemed saints, not only in the Old Testament of the people of Zion, but also in the New Testament, the people that are blood washed by the blood of the Lord. So this becomes important, particularly we've been doing, particularly from Exodus chapter 30, verse 23 and verse 24, the five ingredients that is important to us. We talked about how important this is in terms of, of the temple where it would have a holy anointing oil, verse 24 goes on to say the, the last two. And then from 34 and 35, we come about the incense. So whether it be the holy anointing oil or whether it be in terms of incense, all of the components have to be broken. They are mainly, uh, all of them except for one, are from plant, but the one that is not also has to be broken in order to get the, uh, whether the oil or whether the essence to bring about the holy anointing oil or what would be the second part is the incense. All of this has to do with our intimate relationship with God in the holy temple. And this particularly in the New Testament to have an intimate relationship with our Father through Yeshua Mashiach, our Lord, our Savior. I want to say this, that it's important that we think in terms of worship, we think in terms of intimacy, we think in terms of a union and understanding that relationship so beautified in the Songs of Solomon. So I want to say uh, that number one, uh, there are seven issues I'd like to do if possible. Number one is simply about being pierced, and like every other thing, these things that bring about all of the holy anointing oil, or whether it be the incense, they have to be pierced in order to break through and get whether it be the oil or whether it be the essence. Those are important. In our own lives, the brokenness is what we talk at the cross. But I also want to talk about number two, about myrrh, or whether it be about frankincense or calamus or cinnamon, or whether it be in terms of uh, olive oil, they all come out of something that would be from a tree, from a shrub, from a plant. And again, we'd be talking about just to start, because we can't cover all of this with the myrrh, 
Thirdly, I'll be talking about what every tree would represent. Almost all the saints have a tree, whether it is Moses at the burning bush or Abraham in Mamre under the tree or whether it is Nathaniel basically sitting under, standing under the tree or Zechariah standing over a tree or whether it be in terms of Noah with the olive. We'll talk about that, but we don't have time to run through all of it. But number three, uh, number four, we'll be talking about what would be the many trees there are, but four important trees in the life of our Lord. And number five, I'll be talking about what would be the preaching, the essence of preaching on the tree or simply the cross. Uh, it's not so much the wood, but on the person that came down and humbled himself and went to the cross. That is so important. So one of the things we will understand is the piercing of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross that produces both the blood and the water, that produces salvation through the blood and sanctification of the Holy Spirit and power through the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament had the blood and the oil and the water, but here in the New Testament we have the blood and repentance, and then we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit or the person of the Holy Spirit. Number six, we'll be talking about what would be important, and that's simply to do with the kingdom and also the plant. And finally, we like a tree, what it would represent and how can we apply this message that is not so much that we are going to basically copy what the Old Testament is. It is but a fulfillment of all that represents in Christ and for us through Christ. So that would be the seventh one. Let me begin with what I would call piercing, whether it be of the cinnamon, piercing whether it be of the myrrh or calamus, or whether it be the cinnamon, or whether it be the olive plant, to get the ointment, to get what would be the holy anointing oil when they combined, all in terms of essence, incense that you find from verse 34, all of this had to be pierced. And in our own life, some of the best things happen and we come out better and finer as refined and better than gold, basically when there's what would be a piercing in the spirit or a brokenness in our own lives to move on with God. Let me just remind you, when you go into uh, this passage, the first thing that comes to my mind when it's about the temple is we're not going in the Old Testament. We're not uh, Old Testament to talk about the temple, the priest, the uh, the the tabernacle, uh, the sacrifice, all of what you find in the Old Testament, we don't have to bring it into the New Testament. It's just not worth it. Because they have been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of them have a very important message. That was in the natural for them in the Old Testament, but for us it's a spiritual application, and it's much more meaningful because all of these have been fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether it's a priest or whether it's a sacrifice, whether it's temple or every component of the temple, whether it's the tabernacle, whether it's the holy place or the holiest of holiest, whether it's the Shekinah glory, whether it's the blood that spilled or whether it's the oil, everything is pointing and fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what about the temple of today? Do we have to go into the old way? There's no temple today in Jerusalem, but listen, when you see what is being fulfilled, Jesus is the temple. Three days, I will be raised up, destroy the temple. And of course, they thought literally that it's talking about the building, but it's talking about the finality of that temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. But that apart, what he does is he makes us temple of the living God. When you read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, here is Paul speaking, saying, For we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in us, the Shekinah glory of God, is not in a building, it's not in the gathering. It's basically this building, as wonderful as it is, it's only a sheepfold. But the real temple is you, and the Spirit of God abides in you. The anointing must be in you. The uh, uh, unbelievable way of God's incense of worship must come forth from this temple. That's you and me. Once again, what a joy it is as you watch. If you could share this message to others, we're so glad that you could be with us this morning. And welcome once again to our worship and to this time that we go through the Bible. What I want us to understand when you read the uh, things to do with the per uh, piercing, we need to know that 
It is found in chapter 30, verse 23, and verse 24 of Exodus. And when we talk about it, let me just say, the piercing, you find this, or being cut off in the book of Isaiah, whether you turn to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 8, is cut off. But the real word piercing, we'll also find in the Old and in the New Testament. Take, if you would, the book of Isaiah chapter 53, reading from verse 2 and 3 as we go further, we'll come to know more of it. It says, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And that is how Jesus, our Lord, is personified. Or in a metaphor, he's as a tender plant. And goes on to say, we shall see there's no beauty. Actually, if you were to turn to Isaiah 42 and verse 3, you're going to find about this tender plant, something so beautifully stated about this is that a bruised reed will he not break, and the smoking flash shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. So it's about his judgment, and he's like a bruised reed. He will, a bruised reed, he will not break, he will mend it. So going back to Isaiah chapter 53, why was he, when you look at verse 5, he, it simply says, was wounded for, he was broken, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised, he was cut for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, upon, uh, and the stripes by his stripes you are healed. So all of this bruising and breaking, the piercing, all of this has to do primarily with our salvation, but also to do with the peace with God, peace within ourselves, peace around. And more importantly, we find that another thing about this is uh, as a side dish, apart from salvation, which is the most important, is this aspect of healing of the spirit, soul, body, and of our wholesome uh, total personality, whether it be in terms of relationship, in terms of your job. That is simply important, but not as important as salvation. That is the most important, transgressions and iniquities. For that reason, Jesus had to be pierced, had to be broken, has to be bruised. When you come to certain important passages, you're going to find uh, uh, particularly the intimacy in which you find the Lord uh, for which he comes to us and is broken for us. Uh, it's very powerful. It's uh, important for us to look into that study, particularly when you think in terms of all that our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. You know, when you go into these passages in Songs of Solomon, whether you turn to verse uh, chapter 1 and verse 13, chapter 3 and verse, uh, chapter 3 and verse 6, or chapter 4 and verse 6 and verse 14, chapter 5, verse 1 and verse 13. All of this talks about something to do with murder. We'll come to that in just a, in just a moment. But let me just say the importance of Jesus Christ being pierced becomes very important because it's prophesied all the way back in um, the book of Psalms, uh, the great psalmist David talked about it. Hundreds of years, uh, precisely, almost all the messianic prophets talked about his birth, talked about his ministry, talked about everything aspect to do with his life, but also about his death and about the things in the cross and his resurrection. Take this, for example, in Psalm 22 and verse 16. Look at what the psalmist is saying towards the end of that passage. He says, they have pierced my hand and my feet. What is important is the entire chapter 22 is a messianic psalm. But they have pierced my hand and my feet. This is amazing that he's talking about what took place. Now, when you read John chapter 19 and verse 34, look at what the apostle John is saying. Uh, in John chapter 19, verse 34, one of the soldiers uh, with a spear pierced his side and forward came blood and water. We're talking about blood and water. We'll do that much later, if time permits. But they pierced him. And this is something that has also, uh, further on, chapter 19 and verse 37 John goes on to talk about, this is one of the uh, prophecies. Listen to what, and again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Now, this is now, before that in verse 34, looking backward, this is now looking forward to the day when he will come back again, and they will look with bitterness and tears to the one that they have pierced. 
In fact, you can find that in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. And look, what a marvelous way. Again, hundreds of years before the Messiah was even born, Zechariah says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And listen to what it says. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son, and he shall be in bitterness for him that is bitterness of his firstborn. You know, in fact, the book of Revelation, when John was in the island of Patmos, got this great revelation, not greater than a revelation. He was transported to heaven in the spirit. And one of the things he sees right back in the first chapter, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, listen to what he heard. And this is what it says. He says, Behold, he cometh with the cloud, talking about his second coming, and every, knee, every eye shall see him, and they also, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. Even those that pierced him. Now we not only go to the past, Sam's talking about it and the prophet's talking about it, about a future event and that has been accomplished on the cross and now he's being pierced, they look forward as you go forward to his second coming, there's something going to happen that they look at him whom they have pierced. This is important in this light of what we are doing, particularly in any other components that you find in the Old Testament, particularly do with holy anointing oil, or whether it be incense, they become to us practicals in the house of God in which we become the anointing of God, in which we become uh, incense to God, but ultimately we give incense of praise and worship and thanksgiving unto the Lord. That is very important. When you go into myrrh, something that I just picked up because we don't have time to run through the cinnamon or whether to run with the calamus or whether it be in terms of the olive oil. And uh, just uh, uh, suffice with the myrrh, you're going to find something that speaks like all the other uh, one of these uh, ingredients that is used for not only incense but also for the holy anointing oil. They have to be broken. Now, when you look at myrrh, what does it speak? Right off the bat, it tells us so much to do with king and appointment with the king. As it was in the earthly way, it speaks larger volume in terms of eternity. You know, when you think about Esther being chosen, and she is being prepared to meet with the king, and we're talking in the natural setting, historical setting. And when you read Esther chapter 2 and verse 12, one year of preparation out of that six months basically in Esther chapter 2 and you can read that in verse 12. And what you find in that six months is a preparation of the myrrh and all of the other things that you find with the oils and so forth and so forth. What does it say in the natural for the bride to be prepared, so much so, but it speaks much more as in the natural, so spiritual, much, much, much more magnified because this is something that as bride for the coming king, bride for the groom that will come one day, just like the, the Lord Jesus Christ parable of the five foolish and the five wise, the five were prepared because they had oil, five unprepared because they lacked that oil. But what you find when it do with metaphor, like, uh, like in terms of the uh, uh, things that we used in the uh, olive oil, like myrrh and aloes and cassia, you're going to find it is all prepared for the king that we would be able to meet it and so meet him in that beautiful setting. Um, I think the psalmist has so beautifully said this uh, in chapter 45, verse 7, and particularly verse 8. So here is what the psalmist is saying about this anointing and that God has anointed him with the oil of gladness. And when you turn to verse 8, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. All your garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of ivory palaces. Are we talking about the natural? We're talking about the fullness of all that was in the natural into the spiritual realm. Abundant, abundant of the anointing and abundant of the anointing that and the incense and the and the 
holy oil in the spiritual realm so we come to know the King of Kings and even as we come, we need to realize He's the one who gives us the anointing. He's the one who gives us the just for, uh, uh, for instance, in our prayers, in our worship, in our love, in our devotion, uh, and in our worship to our Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is important, I want you to realize, is when you read these passages, you come again, as I mentioned, to this intimacy, not simply worship, but intimacy that is far beyond what you're going to find from Esther chapter 2 and verse 12, but way beyond what you read in Psalm chapter 45, but you come to what is considered romantic or intimacy from the book of Songs of Solomon. And the passages I referred to before, all of them have to do with myrrh and aloes, have to do with the powerful way in which we come into that garden, far greater, almost uh, reminding us of the Garden of Eden. But this is far greater. Let's just take one from Songs of Solomon, chapter 5 and verse 1. Here is the bride saying, I've come into the garden, and so the garden is smelling of all such and perfume, everything to do with uh, incense and worship. And, but more than all, the Songs of Solomon is talking to us when it refers to myrrh or frankincense or all of the ingredient that you find, whether in the anointing oil or whether you find in the incense, to do with an intimacy with the Father. Old Testament was natural, but they couldn't go into the holiest of holiest. But here in the New Testament, not only are we in the holiest of holiest in the Spirit, but we are seated with Christ in heavenly places and we have that intimacy with the Father. We're not at war with our Father, nor God is at war with us because of the cross and because of the blood and water that flowed out. So we need to recognize that intimacy is brought by the marvelous way. Myrrh has so much to do with the king. It began in the very birth time uh, you're going to find when you turn to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11. What do you think the wise men brought? They brought gold, they brought myrrh, they brought frankincense. So when you think in terms of gold coming from the earth, but when you turn about myrrh again and frankincense, all these two comes from a shrub. And this is very important for us. For example, the myrrh comes from a thorny, and you realize thorn, where in the midst of all of this oil comes the thorn. Jesus Christ wore the crown of thorns for us. Of course he is the royal king. Of course he has the crown as king of kings and lord of lords. But yet for our sake he went to the cross wearing the crown of thorns. What you find in this murder is rather interesting. Basically it's uh, 5,000 plus years ago it all started in the southern part of uh, the Saudi deserts. And you find whether it be in Yemen today or even all the way to Africa, in Sudan, in Ethiopia, you're going to find it's uh, very treasured, very costly. And the way they harvest is amazing. They take this bark, uh, basically pierce it. And what you find from chapter 30 of Exodus and verse 23, talking about myrrh, it says pure. The word actually in the Hebrew simply says flowing. And that's basically what happens. It's almost like bleeding. And the word is called the tree that bleeds. It's basically red until it turns into crimson. So what you find is a, is a plant that's beds red and ultimately it becomes uh, it molds and becomes hard, and then it goes through a refining process from where we get the perfume, the same with the incense. But what you find not only in his birth, but also when you turn to Mark chapter 15 and verse 23, it also becomes the means that speaks even about his time at the cross, and they gave him to drink. Um, wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And so you're going to find in the bitterness of wine, you're going to find myrrh, which is bitter. In Hebrew, it means bitter. Suddenly, it takes away the bitterness of bitter. To take away the bitter of the other one makes it a little more pleasant to drink. What is interesting is on the cross, and this is basically being prophesied. Again, when you turn to Psalm 69, and verse 21, look at what the psalmist is saying. Again, hundreds of years before this happened, 
They gave me also gal for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Of course, the vinegar comes with, mixed with the myrrh. What interesting thing that you find in this. Now, going further, you can read about what took place, even not only on the cross, but after he gave up the ghost. Then you find in John chapter 19 and verse 39, Nicodemus coming uh, to anoint his body with a hundred pounds of myrrh and so forth. And what is interesting is all of this gives us a picture of something having to be broken so the anointing would flow forth, so that the incense would come forth, so that blood for our salvation, redemption, and the water, speaking about what it means as soon as we water baptized and basically talking about the water of the word and water of the Holy Spirit now because he was gone through that 10 days later after his resurrection, Jesus said, I mean, after that, on the 50th day from that cross comes down the Pentecost and the water of the Holy Spirit, the rain of the Holy Spirit. What is so interesting is when you look at Exodus 30 and 23, these ingredients are very important. It speaks of incense and holy anointing, speaks in the temple at is, as it is used in the temple, whether it be in the implements of the temple or whether it be in the, on the priest, whether it be on uh, people essentially, whether it's the duty of a prophet or a king, all of this is very important. The anointing and the incense that comes as praise unto God, this is all for the kingdom of God. What is so important is when you turn to what the psalmist is saying, it speaks to us of praise, it speaks to us of prayer. Listen to what he says in Psalm 141 and verse 2. Because this, the lifting up our hands and also in our praises, in our prayers, Psalm 141 verse 2 lifts us the incense and worship unto God. Very important for us to realize, again, when you go into another passage, uh, particularly the book of Revelation, this is uh, played out in the future, and you're looking at what takes place in heaven, Revelation chapter 8, 3 and 4. This is very important. This is to do with the incense, the prayers of the saints. So when you turn to Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, it says another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. That is where the incense, but this is not the temple. This is not the earth. This is in literally what would be the eternal temple. This is in heaven. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers, with the prayers, with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Think about this for a moment, how important it is. Again, I like the way the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament in chapter 1 and verse 11, gives us the essence of this type of worship to the ends of the earth, from the rising of the sun even unto the going down unto the, the same name will be great among the Gentiles. In every place, in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name, and pure offering for my name shall be great among the heathen, say the Lord. So what is in the Old Testament comes out to reality in the New Testament of all nations, of all kindred, because we're not talking about one little tribe or one little place or a cultural or a geographical place. We're talking about the nations, that is the church, ecclesia, called out from across the world, sought seeking to give that incense, the worship to the Lord across the world. And that is important. But there's something we need to realize. Uh, it is not only in terms of who Jesus is. He came into Jerusalem on a donkey. And yet you find in John, uh, Revelation, John the Beloved sees Jesus Christ in a white stallion. That is amazing. He comes with the thousands and thousands of saints. We're calling the fulfillment of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in triumph and glory. That being said, Zechariah sees the one that is called the man, the one that is called the angel of the Lord. All of the synonym is the name of the Lord. He comes as the angel of the Lord. He's also the man, the son of man, is the son of God. So you're going to find these titles come, and yet it's upon a redos. If you read Zechariah chapter 1, verse 8, listen to what he says, and it's a marvelous way he puts it and what he sees. 
I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were horses speckled with white. So he's talking about a man riding. And then when you come down to verse 10, look what he says. Then said uh, I, O Lord, what? Then the man that stood among the myrtles answered, and these are they whom the Lord had sent to walk through and fro. So there are so many others in horses, and this one in the red horse is also called the angel. This is the pre-incarnate one before he was coming to this earth as uh, Jesus. But look what it says in verse 11. And they answered, the angel, then answered the angel of the Lord. So suddenly the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtles. So here is a beautiful picture of the angel of the Lord and surrounded by the, the ones that come with the Lord. And yet it says, surrounding or stood by the myrtle trees. When you read a reference of all of this myrtle tree, reference is the saints of God. In the Old Testament, it was the Hebrew. In the New Testament, we find from the book of Revelation, it is the redeemed saints, having walked through and through the earth and behold, all the earth sits and is at rest. That is what the Lord does. You know, very important when you read this, uh, you're going to find the ultimate praise and worship goes to the Father, the incense being lifted up. Uh, for example, when you read Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, that the highest, and it's called the sacrifices of praise. And this is the New Testament, not the Old Testament that they bring a sacrifice, but in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, this is the sacrifice, the completion of all that was taking place in the temple. Its fullness comes out here in the New Testament, and it is a sacrifice of praise continually that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his holy name. And this is because we come to this recognition, not only is he the one that is raised after giving his life, but the way that I talked about the last time, Paul refers to the death and burial and resurrection of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, is in a rather a glorious way, and listen to what he says in chapter 5. He says, for Christ has given himself as an offering, as a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savour. You're going to find in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 2, as he has risen up, and that is like incense being poured to the Father in glorifying the Father. And then again, he becomes the ascension gifts after he raises up, and he gives uh, what would be the fivefold ascension gift ministry. And all of these are gifts that we find in his resurrection. It is a sweet-smelling sever, and all of this is to the glory of God the Father in Jesus' name. Let me go to the third point, and this is to do, as I mentioned, almost uh, every one or the individual you find in the Bible is somehow connected to a tree. It's like a character study that you can almost find. But let me just say, trees are found right bang in the book of Genesis, going all the way to the last book of the, of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation, the last chapter, 22. So if you were to take Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, two trees are mentioned, the tree of life and the tree of the fruit of good and evil. But man chose of all things the, what was forbidden, and yet... Uh, you find the tree of life, and basically the tree of life you would have thought is the end of it because of man's fall. No, because of the tree, of the one that hanged upon the tree, a curse is he that hangs on the tree, but we are going to find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, that because he took the curse, we have been blessed, and the blessings of Abraham come through the Holy Spirit of God. But again, when you go all the way to the end, because it looks like, oh my God, we're done and we're finished because of what took place of the Adamic fall. But you go all the way back and you can always find the end story to find it's very interesting. So before you start to weep and say, is that the end? Revelation chapter 2, 22 and verse 2. Revelation 22 and verse 2 talks about the river and two banks and the right bank in the center is the tree of life and calling us to eat and partake of it. In fact, that's what Revelation chapter 2 verse 7 says. Is that what Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14 says all to do with the tree of life. But coming back to Genesis, you're going to find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 3, do not touch of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is what they touched in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 3. The moment they took of it, they were naked. And again, 
an apron made out of a product of a tree, the fig tree. It didn't last. It had to be by the blood. And verse 24 of chapter 3, the, uh, the cherubim was basically kept God, lest the man comes and eat of the tree of life in his fallen stage. And Jesus becomes that tree for us, and we'll do that in just a moment. But i like us to realize the marvelous way interwoven in the Bible is when you think about Noah, uh, Genesis chapter 8 and verse 11, you're thinking about the hope in the midst of all of the ravages that's taking place. This is basically a leaf uh, from olive, and that becomes peace and hope to this man. When you think about the communion and the communication, intimacy of Abraham with God, and God comes down to meet with him much later in chapter 18, he's coming down and bearing his heart to, uh, how can I withhold from Abraham? But what you find in chapter 18 and verse 8, in verse 1, is at Mamre in his tent, but verse 8 goes on, says, he's under the tree in Mamre, where God communes. There were three angelic beings, one of them Christ himself, and communing with Abraham, that is almost like a picture of a worship being take, taking place. We know about the songs of Zion, but you know there's the fruits of Zion, and so when you think in terms of Numbers chapter 13 and verse 23, they bring in to show to the people in, on their trek and their journey the fruits of, Sy, of this new city called uh, the Canaan land, and so they would give them hope. But what is interesting is, you look at Moses, and this, like Abraham, is intimacy, is contact, is, is worship of God, is basically you find what you call uh, Eastern word Nirwana or Revelation, it is when he sees in chapter 3 of the book of Exodus and verse 2, a plan that is burning with fire and yet not consumed. He turned around and looked and then he heard the voice of God saying, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. So this tree looks to me like just a tree, but there was the anointing of God, God being represented. God is not a tree, that is pantheism, but the tree almost would remind us the presence of God in the midst of what would be the backside of the desert changed the entire life of this man who has been for 40 years, and this was that day that turned him right around to become what would be the redeemer that God had sent to redeem the people of Israel through the angel of the Lord. What you find in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus and verse 21, again a story of how the water is bitter and then from a tree branch that is thrown, the bitter water becomes sweet. Interesting. You find another incident when you think about Aaron. What else do you think about? Unlike Moses, not uh, in a burning bush, but you're thinking about the authority of a high priest, and you find a rod, a dead dry stick. And yet, you find in Numbers chapter 17 and verse 8, this is the rod that budded. In other words, a reminder to the people of Israel, particularly the priests that go into the holy place, where there was this rod that budded to remind them that God still can do the impossible. God is still at his work today. He's in the business of transforming lives. What would have been impossible, a rod that is dead dry stick, is now budded. And that's a reminder for the people of Israel, and particularly as the priest goes in, God is still powerful. He's still able to change them to the uttermost. Give the Lord a clap offering. You know, when you think about people like, think about Elijah. What do you think about this man? Again, a tree in First um, Kings chapter 19 and verse 5. He was so discouraged. He was seated there under the tree, and he basically was about as despondent and discouraged as possible. And the angel of the sword, Lord said, Arise, uh, Elijah, and rise up. And that becomes for him a monumental task of basically anointing people, whether it be a king or a prophet or another man, basically, which has a future effect much later. When you are thinking about Elisha, what do you think about? Um, you know, uh, basically uh, an implement that went into the water, the head 
of an axe, and you're going to find in Second uh, Kings chapter 6 and verse 6, what does he throw? He throws in a branch, and sure enough, it is the iron which was flow all the way down, just folded up, and he was able to lift. So all of these prophets basically seem to have some tree or another. What is interesting is when you read so much about this, Psalm chapter 1 and verse 3 prefigures man, uh, the blessings of a man. And how do you describe this man? Blessed is the man that is planted. It's like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in season, and his leaf also shall not wither. Talking about total blessings, spirit, soul, body, and everything that he should do because the tree, what the one who died on the tree gives to us his blessing, taking upon himself our curse. Again, uh, when you look into the Bible, the righteous man is in a very descriptive form, something that is growing tall. And two trees are mentioned to just describe this righteous man. And it speaks about those that are under the covering of the Lord's righteousness. And what you find in Psalm 92 and verse 12 is shall grow up like a palm tree, flourish, flourish, prosper like a palm tree, and he shall grow tall like a cedar. So two noble trees, a palm tree, very fruitful, every aspect of that tree, whether it's the thatched roof, whether it is uh, wood for, in those days, that's livelihood for them, or fruit or water to do the nectar. All of this is important, and cedar is very powerful tree as well. You know, again, making a description of not only a righteous man and a blessed man, talking about a godly family. It's, they say the family that prays together stays together. The family that eats together stays together. But look at how marvelous uh, the psalmist describes the family, particularly the wife, talking about uh, a type of a tree, and then the children, another type of a tree. Read in Psalm 128, and verse 3, I like the way that the psalmist is saying, the wife shall be as a fruitful wine by your side of the house and the children as olive plants round about your table. It is very descriptive. Um, the Old Testament prophets saw visions and among the many visions they saw were trees. Say, for example, in the beginning of the prophecy, Jeremiah sees something very unique. And so in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 11, uh, what does he see? And uh, in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 11, he says, I see a rod, a rod of an almond tree. And then God goes on to explain what this typifies and what it would mean for the children of Israel. Very interesting, when you go back to, go into Jer Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 22, talks about the balm and talks about the healing. Uh, is there no balm in Gilead? So this balm, and you remember old southern song, there is a balm in Gilead, and talking about the Lord, talking about his blood, talking about the healing. But it simply means, yes, there is a balm in Gilead, a tree that brings the healing, a tree that brings salvation, a tree that mends the broken heart. And he says, is, no, is there no physician? Why then is not the health of my daughter, of my people, not recovered? So you're going to find, yes, God has planted for us a tree. What simply says a balm, there is a balm in Gilead. I talked about Zechariah and the marvelous way in which he referenced the myrtle tree. And all of this was so wonderful, particularly when you realize how meaningful these trees are. Almost all of the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ has to do with sower going out to sow and the seeds that come from a tree or come from uh, basically whatever that man is going to plant. And again, when you talk about the simple thing of not worrying, how does Jesus, our Lord, give an illustration? Matthew chapter 6, verse 28, he talks about the lilies of the field. Uh, you know, your father does that, also referencing to uh, sparrows, but here's the lily, and so you don't have to worry. The father who takes care of the lilies will also take care of you. That analogy is so beautiful, and uh, many times Jesus talks about almost everything to do with wood, and his life has been almost characterized. He was a 
a person who basically was a carpenter. And when you look at, and I talked about the last time, uh, the many types of wood there is. But uh, again, the people that reference as wood, whether it be Zechariah or whether it be Nathaniel under the tree or whether it be so many people in the New Testament always connected with a tree. But what I want to just say today before we close is something very important, and that is something to do with what would be four important trees in the life of our Lord. There are so many trees, but you're going to find in the life of the Lord four trees speaks very loudly. The first tree is the palm tree. And when you read John chapter 12, verse 13, you're reminded of Palm Sunday only because the branches of the palm tree, they went to meet him and cried, Hosanna, the king, uh, blessed is the king. But this a triumphant day turns out to be a very sad day a few days later because a few days later they were crying out, kill him. And they rather choose a Barabbas than the Lord and Savior. In the midst of this, the visitation of God, they shut their door. Jesus, our Lord, talked about he would have been a mother hen protecting his chicken, but they would not because they missed the hour of their visitation. And yet John chapter 1, verse 12 says, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons of God. So what does this palm talk about? Talks about a crossroads, talk about an opportunity. Either you can reject him, John chapter 1, verse 11, or you can accept him, John chapter 1, verse 12. Big difference. That is life unto without God and life with God. And its eternity plays out so loudly and clearly. The second tree, what you find, is what would be a powerful figure of a fig tree. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ gave some tremendous parable. But among them, he talked about the fig tree. And when you turn to Luke chapter 13 and verse 6, it begins by saying, so he gave this parable, and in this parable he talked about a man who's going, uh, planted a fig tree, and now it has been three years, and there was no fruit. So when you turn to verse 7, verse, uh, he said to the, behold, these three years I've come seeking and find none. Why cumbrous thou the ground? And so basically in verse 9 he says, cut it. So this is important played out with this parable. Uh, let me just remind you, in, in uh, Mark chapter, I believe, 15 and verse uh, 21, is another reference that you can find about the fig. And they compelled, okay, verse, um, talking about bearing the cross, and they gave him to drink. Now, we, it is basically to do with, uh, with this very aspect of the, uh, of the tree, but fig tree, and he basically cursed the fig tree, all to say that on that day he died, he became the one, the fig tree that was accursed so that we would bear fruit. So when you look at this fruit bearing only because of the one that died for us. So this morning, if any of you are cursed or whatever the time of the day, I'm going to say this, the one that took upon himself the living fig tree becomes a cursed tree on the cross for you and for me so that you would be fruitful so you would have all that you didn't have because of Jesus Christ our Lord maybe I'm speaking to you today I'm speaking to you today the Lord took that curse on the cross and I want you to know the fig is bearing fruit because of him as long as you understand that he's the wine and as long as we're connected with him, the sap of his virtue, the sap of his strength flows into our body. I want to just re uh, talk about the third tree, and that is the olives. And you know, it's a lot of reference. In the earlier thing, you have the Sermon on the Mountain, the Sermon on the Boat. But the latter part of his life, a lot of the passages have to do with the latter part, whether it Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And this is leading to Jerusalem and ultimately culminating in his death, burial, resurrection. But what you find is the sermon that he speaks and the discourse that he gives 
is no more like the sermon, not on a boat, but literally called the Sermon of the Mount. It is to do with him going to Jerusalem. It is to do with him going to the cross. It is with, to do with his resurrection and also played out in the future in the time to come and things that Christians and people must be beware, uh, to be aware of. When you turn to Matthew chapter 21 and verse 1, it says he and his disciples were going and they come unto the Mount of Olives. What is the Mount of Olives? The very mountain where there is so much olive tree. And it tells us that he would be the olive that would be cracked and crushed. When you turn to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36, it's this place called Gethsemane. It is in this place of olives where he is sweating, that he is going through that crushing moment until he goes all the way to Golgotha, where he's totally pierced and crushed, and out of that comes the blood, redemption, and water for the cleansing and the power of the Word of God. But the fourth tree that I want to talk about is far greater than the palm tree and far greater than the fig tree and far greater than the olive tree is to do with the ignoble wood, just ordinary wood. It's a piece of wood they put together and put it as a cross, a place of crucifixion. This is the most important, not the piece of wood. People glorify in a cross what is basically wood, what Paul is talking about, that simple cross is where the God of glory, lest the celestial glory and honor of heaven, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and in humility died for you and for me. John chapter 19 and verse 19, look at what is written on that cross, king of the Jews, and that's what Pilate wrote. But when you turn to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, from verse 5 onwards, but particularly verse 8, it says, uh, but going, going to verse 8, and being found in a fashion, coming down from the God of glory, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So here you find something what Jesus our Lord is telling us and teaching us, and this is so important, particularly very vital for every one of us. He goes on the cross for our salvation, and yet he tells us to go to the cross, not for our salvation, so we too can have that crushing experience where the best that is uh, would flow out deep within us, like the earth contains the earth, Earth contains so much of vegetation out of which we have to dig out. There's so much within you and you will never let it out until you let go self and let the spirit bring forth that which is in you. Greater than diamond, greater than the greatest uranium that is being sought after, deep within you is the kingdom of God and only through that time of cracking or piercing or breaking can you find he was bruised for our iniquity, he was broken, and many at times not for our salvation, so that we could produce the best as fire brings out the best of the finest gold, he wants us to be finer than we were yesterday. So what you find is uh, unbelievably that Jesus is telling us this very important principle. This principle is enshrined in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. Look what he says. He says, take up your cross. And this is the implement of our crucifixion. In other words, take our you know, electric chair or take whatever it is to crucify the old man, the self, the nature that is so selfish so that more of God and less of ourselves, more of the presence of our Savior and less of self and that God would be glorified because we are the temple of God, and it is through that sacrifice, incense of praise, 
through those difficult moments, the best and the brightest worship talks place. The greatest songs comes from the nightingale who sings his best songs in the middle, in the mid, and in the darkness of the night. What you find is God is changing us into what would be a simple temple, into God's temple where the Holy Spirit lives, where the incense and anointing oil is used for the glory of God. Number five, I want to say how important this becomes the center of the preaching in the book of Acts. So if you want to look at the history, how preaching should be, you're going to find the book of history. There's only one, unlike the Old Testament 12. And this one is so important because it doesn't end. It just basically closes at 28, but it keeps going on even to this 21st century. If you want to know the center, in Acts chapter, I think five and verse 30, Acts chapter 10 and verse 39, Acts chapter 13 and verse 29, all of them talk about Jesus hanging on the tree, or in verse 39, they slew and hanged on a tree, and verse 13 and 29 talks about how they removed him from that tree that he was hanging on, uh, chapter 13 and verse 39, Acts chapter. So all of this have to do, Acts chapter 13 now and verse 29, again, another part of his, uh, of his message, the message is they laid him in a sepulcher, they took him down from the cross, that seems to be the center of teaching that is centered on the cross. Not, not a wood piece, but the essence of Jesus dying on the cross for you and for me. So all of what we're talking about is the tree, is the ultimate tree. The tree took the place for us, and he becomes the sacrifice. And you find in him a tree had to be broken, a tree had to be bruised, to produce that wooden cross. And on that was the tree, the Lord Jesus Christ, he was pierced. Like a tender plant that grows up. And he's one that is so tender, and yet he's the mighty God in all his glory. Broken for you, bruised for you and for me. This is important because when you read these passages, that's what the reason we find the tree had to go through that experience or the person on the tree. Why? Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and verse 14, it is simply telling us Christ has redeemed us by his blood and from the curse of the Lord being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That is from Deuteronomy. And why? Again, in verse 14 tells us the reason that the blessing, the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. They received it in a natural way, but we receive the promise by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. What I want us to realize is this effectual way in which this powerful message comes to us on the essence of the cross, the preaching of the cross, is so vital, so important. Look at how Paul talks about his preaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17 and 18. Very important, but particularly in verse 18, he goes on to say, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Today we find a whole lot of foolish preaching talking about this and talking about prosperity and talking about give me a thousand dollars. It is plaguing the church, not only here, but all across the world. If we could only stick to the preaching of the cross, and that is a wisdom. Look what he says in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 11. Paul writing talks, is the offense of the cross ceased? People will preach anything else because cross is an offense to people. You mean to say the God of glory comes to save us from dying for, for us on a cross? Yes, yes, yes. It is from that cross, the one that died, that we find salvation, that we find peace with God. That is where we find the peace within ourselves and also where we find healing of our spirit, soul, and body. I like to emphasize again what Paul writes about in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. He simply says, I will boast of the cross. That's uh, 6 and verse 14. And that is uh, simply says, if there's anything, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the whole world is crucified unto me and I to the world. I will boast 
of the cross. That seems to me very important. Running through the just next six and seven, let me just say, Jesus, our Lord, talked about the kingdom. And among the many analogies he gave about the kingdom, um, he gives in Matthew chapter 13, verse 31 and verse 32. Look at the way in which he begins in verse 31. Um, it's, f it's found in, um, basically, we just talked about. Another parable put he, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. So it's simply talking about how little, how small, like a seed that goes into your heart. And then in verse 32 goes on to say, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it looks so scandalous, a tree, Jesus dying on the cross, and yet it says, it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air can come and lodge in the branches thereof. In a heavy climate, arid desert, if there is this uh, tree that is there, gives them desert and gives them all that need, you're going to find even birds find shelter, as in parts of even today in many parts of the arid desert. This is the mustard seed, though it's little, and Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God within you. It is magnificent, it is mighty. Ultimately, he is that tree. You know, Nebuchadnezzar saw this vision and he was troubled. And Daniel had to interpret him. What, what was his vision? Daniel chapter 10, verse, uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. In this vision, he says, this vision of mine, head in my bed, I saw, behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. And in verse uh, 11, the tree grew and was strong, and the height reached unto the heavens, and the sight thereof to the ends of the earth. Verse 12, he goes on to say, The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and it meant for all, and the beast of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boast thereof, and all flesh shall feed of it. And that is talking about the tree of life, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Just in closing, I talked about everything to do with the Lord. It is a metaphor for the Lord, but also it is a metaphor for, for us as believers. Number one, I talked about Psalm 1 and verse 3, the blessedness of a man. He's compared like a tree planted by the waters. Talks about the righteousness of a man in Psalm 92 and verse 12. He's basically like a palm tree and he's like a majestic cedar tree. Number two, what you're going to find is not only is he that, but we find if you and I are trees, we need water. John chapter 4 and verse 10, Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman, you have water, but soon you'll be thirsty. But I have water, you will never thirst. He is the living water. Drink of that living water. As tree, we need that to survive. And again, when you think in terms of water, that is very powerful. John chapter 17 and verse 17, God goes on to say, the Lord says that my word is uh, water and it is truth, very powerful. And not only the water, it signifies the water baptism, but also talks about the water that is poured like rain, the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Now, you know, thirdly, we need to understand something very important. We need to be rooted. And the way Paul writes to the church in Colossians, he's using what would be a word for agriculture, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 7. And this is what we ought to do. We need to be rooted and grounded, established, and dug deep in as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. So are we rooted? Are we planted? Have we gone right in to find our strength, or are we just shaking with every wind that flows in? Be rooted in Jesus, because we live in the last days when people calling themselves prophets and archbishops and so forth and so forth are doing every crazy stuff to get your money and you. And there's so many. I'm not talking about people out in the world. I'm talking about in churches today. We need to be rooted in the Lord. We need to be rooted in the Word. We need to be rooted in the Spirit, all of them water. Something else we need to realize, we need the sun 
as uh, basically plans, we need not only the S-O-S-U-N, we need the S-U-N. Listen to what it says in John chapter 8 and verse 12. Jesus said, I am the light, and we need that light of the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of his word, the light of everything that he gives to the Holy Spirit. Finally, let me just say, all of this that we are trees, and what's the purpose? John chapter 15, verse 16, the Lord Jesus said, you have not chosen me. I have chosen you and ordained you. Why? That you should go forth and bring fruit. That your fruit should remain. Over the years, I've seen people, they bring in fruit. The other day, we bid goodbye to Minister Hyacinth. You know what's so amazing? Many people don't realize I have couples sitting down there all the way from Westchester. I have a doctor family coming in. This woman brought in people because she had this personal counseling. And there are others, ministry leaders, even though they're not well. People stay. But I have some people, you give them 20 people, they become aluminized. They do not come anymore. What is the reason? Your fruit must remain, and that is the proof of your pudding. That is so important. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 20. Very important, not only that your future should remain, but it says by their fruits you would know them. Examine a man not by the title, but look at whether there is fruit. If there's no fruit, it doesn't matter how much that he would cover himself with flashy titles, that man must bring in fruit. And that fruit can only come when you are faithful to the Lord and faithful to your calling and faithful to the work that God has assigned for you. Something that's very important, and I'll close with this as the band comes to worship the Lord. A principle that each one of us need to apply when it comes to plant. And that was through of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it should be of us as well. In John chapter 12, verse 24, listen to what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat, broken, pierced, cut down, just go to the earth. If it does not, it will abide alone. But if it does, it dies and then it brings forth much fruit. That is an analogy of a plant. That is what Jesus, our Lord, is talking about himself. But then he's turning to his disciples and says, you are that corn of wheat. There are times you don't know what's going on. There's a whole lot of shaking. Stay through the Lord. There are times you are dying a hundred deaths. And Paul said, I die daily. What he simply means is for me to live is first to die to self, except it dies, it abides alone. But if it does die, I cannot tell you the number of people who have been blessed by a saint, by a precious Christian who's gone through so much challenges in her or his life and then turns out to bless others with abundant blessing. It is a tree that is rooted, that goes all the way down and out of that comes the blessedness of a tree. Out of that comes the righteousness of a tree. Thanks be to God. For the tree speaks about Jesus, but the tree also speaks about us. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that you've been encouraged by the word of the Lord. To learn more, please visit our website, highlandny.org, or our Facebook page, Highland Church, New York. Until next time, may God richly bless you.